We want to welcome you to the Bible teaching ministry of Fellowship Bible Church, where our desire is to honor God by faithful obedience to His Word. If you want to understand the Bible better, please continue to listen as Pastor Matt Postiff explains and applies the biblical text one verse at a time. You can reach us with questions or for more teaching audio and print material at our website, fbcaa.org. You can also watch our services live at fbcaa.org slash live. We want to thank you for listening and pray that you will be edified. Join us now as Pastor Postiff opens God's Word. Glad that you're joining us tonight for our service at Fellowship Bible Church. Let's turn our Bibles to Second Chronicles 25, please. I do want you to open up those Bibles and turn them to Second Chronicles 25. Follow along, please, as I read. We're continuing on through especially the history of the southern kings. Remember, Chronicles focuses there. First and second kings is kind of a more broad overview of both the northern and southern kingdom. Second, uh, first and second Chronicles more focused on the southern kingdom, which is natural because that's where God was focused and where um, we could say the promised king was supposed to have been. How history would have been different had the nation not split and had been more obedient to God on balance over the course of its history from 1400 B.C. forward to the time of Christ, but such as it was. Chapter 25, we have uh, Amaziah. Joash has died. Remember, he started out well under the uh, tutelage of Jehoiada, the priest. He died at 130 years old, and then uh, Joash went astray and would not listen to God's word. That is a tragic, tragic historical event or series of events. Now, Amaziah was 25 years old when he became king, and he reigned 29 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Jehoadan of Jerusalem. Now, listen to this. And he did what was right in the sight of the Lord, but not with a loyal heart. I almost wish that was a typo, don't you? I would love to see, but and with a loyal heart, but it's, but not with a loyal heart. How do you do what is right, but not with a loyal heart? Well, I think you can imagine that. Religious people do things that are okay, good things, but they don't do things out of a heart of love for God and faith in his word. Um, and so we have this kind of inconsistent approach to God and uh, he needed to pray to unite my heart to fear your name, God, not to have a divided heart or uh, an unloyal or disloyal heart. Now it happened, verse 3 says, as soon as the kingdom was established for him that he executed his servants who had murdered his father, the king. However, he did not execute their children, but did as it is written in the law of the book of Moses, where the Lord commanded, saying, the fathers shall not be put to death for their children, nor shall the children be put to death for their fathers, but a person shall die for his own sin. Suppose you suppose that you know why somebody would violate that command? Well, if he killed the, the people that did that, then their sons might try to get revenge on him. So he might just tend to wipe out the whole line, get rid of them all. And that's what uh, dictators and tyrants do, but not in accordance with God's law. And uh, those youngsters should have recognized that it was not right for their fathers to kill 
the king, even if he was somewhat of a scoundrel. Moreover, Amaziah gathered Judah together and set them, set over them captains of thousands and hundreds, according to their fathers' houses, throughout all Judah and Benjamin. And he numbered them from 20 years old and above and found them to be 300,000 choice men able to go to war who could handle spear and shield. He also hired 100,000 mighty men of valor from Israel for 100 talents of silver. But a man of God came to him saying, O king, do not let the army of Israel go with you, for it is the Lord, for the Lord is not with Israel, nor with any of the children of Ephraim. But if you go, be gone. Be strong in the battle. Even so, God shall make you fall before the enemy, for God has power to help and to overthrow. Then Amaziah said to the man of God, But what shall we do about the hundred talents which I have given to the troops of Israel? The man of God answered, The Lord is able to give you much more than this. So Amaziah discharged the troops that had come to him from Ephraim to go back home. Therefore, their anger was greatly aroused against Judah, and they returned home in great anger. That's too bad. I mean, he could have just come to them and said, Well, you know, the Lord has told me I can't have you added to the army, but I paid you. Now go your way, enjoy the pay, freebie. You didn't have to fight. You didn't have to risk your life. And uh, I'm, I'm sorry about what I did that was wrong, but didn't quite approach it that way. Then Amaziah strengthened himself and leading his people, he went to the Valley of Salt and killed 10,000 of the people of Seir, that's Edom. Also the children of Judah took captive 10,000 alive and brought them to the top of the rock and cast them down from the top of the rock so that they all were dashed in pieces. But as for the soldiers of the army which Amaziah had discharged so that they would not go with him to battle, they raided the cities of Judah from Samaria to Beth Horon, killed 3,000 in them, and took much spoil. Now it was so, after Amaziah came from the slaughter of the Edomites, that he brought the gods of the people of Seir, set them up to be his gods, and bowed down before them and burned incense to them. Well, there's the disloyal heart, isn't it? Therefore, the anger of the Lord was aroused against Amaziah, and he sent him a prophet who said to him, Why have you sought the gods of the people which could not rescue their own people from your hand? It doesn't make any sense, does it? You defeated these people. Their God was powerless against the God of Judah. So it was as he talked with him that the king said to him, Have we made you the king's counselor? Cease. Why should you be killed? Then the prophet ceased and said, I know that God has determined to destroy you because you have done this and have not heeded my advice. Now Amaziah, king of Judah, asked advice and sent to Joash, son of Jehoahaz, the son of Jehu, the king of Israel, saying, Come, let us face one another in battle. And Joash, king of Israel, remember the other Joash is gone. He was the halfway good king. This is an Israelite, northern kingdom king. He sent to Amaziah, king of Judah, saying, The thistle that was in Lebanon said to the cedar that was in Lebanon, saying, Give your daughter to my son as wife. And a wild beast that was in Lebanon passed by and trampled the thistle. Indeed, you say that you have defeated the Edomites, and your heart is lifted up to boast. Stay at home now. Why should you meddle with trouble that you should fall, you and Judah with you? But Amaziah would not heed, for it came from God that he might give them into the hand of their enemies, because they sought the gods of Edom. So Joash, king of Israel, went out, and he and Amaziah, king of Judah, faced one another at Beth Shemesh, which belongs to Judah. 
And Judah was defeated by Israel, and every man fled to his tent. And Joash, the king of Israel, captured Amaziah, king of Judah, the son of Joash, the son of Jehoahaz, at Beth Shemesh. And he brought him to Jerusalem and broke down the wall of Jerusalem from the gate of Ephraim to the corner gate, 400 cubits. And he took all the gold and silver, all the articles that were found in the house of God with Obed-Edom, the treasures of the king's house and hostages, and returned to Samaria. Amaziah, the son of Joash, king of Judah, lived 15 years after the death of Joash, the son of Jehoahaz, king of Israel. So it doesn't really give us a lot of detail here, but obviously the king of Israel was merciful to the king of Judah, and he let him live. That's probably more than could be said for the king of Judah if he had captured the king of Israel. Do you suppose? Too bad that the people that are not the people of God do better than the people that are the people of God. Uh, so Amaziah uh, uh, was, um, he outlived the guy who captured him, and now the rest of the acts of Amaziah from first to last. Indeed, they, are they not written in the book of the kings of Judah and Israel? After the time that Amaziah turned away from following the Lord, they made a conspiracy against him in Jerusalem, and he fled to Lachish, but they sent after him to Lachish and killed him there. Then they brought him on horses and buried him with his fathers in the city of Judah. Next, we're going to come to Uzziah, who was generally a good king as well, reigned a long time, but uh, had some issues as well. So, tough thing to persevere in the faith and live all the way to the end and not kind of mess up, you know. Shows you, doesn't it, that people have that tendency. We've got to be always on guard for that. Lord, keep me faithful. Lord, keep you and you and you and you all faithful. All of you online watching, faithful, there's no guarantee, not, not certainly if we're relying on our own flesh or thinking our own, you know, making up our own machinations. We have to rely upon the Lord for his help. All right, we better get on to Matthew chapter 22. If you would turn your Bible there, I plan to share with you the completion of this chapter. And uh, we've been enjoying chapter 22 for some time now. Of course, you know we've talked about the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Herodians desperate to do something to trap Jesus or get him to say something, and they're working hard at it, but uh, they didn't, they couldn't quite make it. Now, they had asked three questions to try to trip him up. Four, if you count the one in Matthew 21 about his authority, do you remember that? By, by whose authority do you do these things? That was a challenging question to him as well. And he uh, worked around that by asking them a question regarding John the Baptist. And they wouldn't answer, so he didn't answer. The final question, so we have the four, or three in this chapter, one before. The final question of the series is not a question to Jesus, but it's a question from him to the Pharisees, Okay. The religious and secular leaders are played out. Their questions have availed nothing. They wanted to get rid of Jesus. They only served to highlight his wisdom and authority and power. They didn't get what they wanted. So then the Lord completely turned the tables on them by asking his own question. Now, before we uh, read the question, uh, it says, Jesus asked them, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them, verse number 41. Before we even read the question, we can 
anticipate that it was an important question. It was not necessarily a stumper or a uh, riddle sort of thing or a brain bender, but one that would point out an important spiritual lesson for the stiff-necked and hard-hearted religious people of the day. The Pharisees' questions were largely irrelevant, except that the Lord was able to turn irrelevant questions around and teach a spiritual truth, master teacher. But his question was a question that was important in pointing to the Messiah who could save those people from the darkness of their sin. So the Lord asked a question about the promised Messiah. He says this, verse 42, What do you think about the Christ? That is, what do you think about the Messiah, the anointed one? Whose son is he? They said to him, the son of David. He said to them, How then does David in the Spirit call him Lord, saying, and then he quotes, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Does anybody know where that comes from? Without looking at your footnotes. Psalm 110, 1. David then calls him, Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day on did anyone dare question him anymore. Well, he put a stop to that. Put a stop to that. Great spiritual wisdom there was able to put a stop to their foolish activity. So the Lord asked the question about the promised Messiah. And it's a simple question, whose son is he? Whose son is he to be? Now, the question assumes some common knowledge held by all, or should have been held by all. First of all, the Messiah was understood to be a human being. He would be a real man. He would be the offspring of someone else. Okay, That was understood. Secondly, he would be somehow anointed by God for his special office. Now, when we looked at the gospel message in terms of, remember the message I gave on clarity in the gospel? It was around August 13th or whatever that Sunday was. I mentioned that Jesus was chosen by God to be king. We'll come to that in a moment again. He was appointed by God to his special office. That was known to the Pharisees, Sadducees, religious leaders, anybody who was paying attention to the Jewish traditions. They knew that. Third, the Messiah was a sufficiently well-known figure in the Hebrew Bible that a question about him would be intelligible to any of the religious leaders. They were awaiting the coming Messiah, hoping that he would appear to deliver them. I think they're idea was he's going to deliver them from Roman domination at that time. Um, many Jews today have given up on the idea of Messiah, Messiah altogether. You know, he didn't come for us. He didn't help us in the Roman domination. He didn't help us when we were in concentration camps in Nazi Germany. They foreclosed on the idea entirely, not recognizing that all that's part of God's chastening plan for them. So he was a well-known figure in the Hebrew Bible that they would understand who Jesus is talking about. They were hoping he'd come. And this hope permeated the minds of the faithful Jewish person. Do you remember Simeon in the temple? The Spirit of God revealed to him that he would not see death until he had seen the Lord's Messiah, the Christ. 
And oh, how he longed to see that day. And he saw the baby and he knew that he was holding in his arms the consolation of Israel. The longed for coming Messiah, the consolation. That's Luke 2, 25 and 26 in the birth narrative of the Lord. So they knew about the Messiah. In fact, they knew so much that they were kind of waiting for him like we are. You know that when we talk about Jesus' second coming? You're waiting for that, aren't you? We're looking for that glorious hope, the blessed appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, Titus 2, 13. You look it up, make sure I've got the right address. Anyway, we know that. That's our hope. That was their hope, faithful Jewish people. Now, when we talk about this, we might profitably ask ourselves, where was Messiah found or where is he found in the Old Testament? Well, among other places, you find him in the psalm that we mentioned earlier. That's Psalm 110.1, one of the most quoted in the New Testament, in the Bible. Psalm 110.1, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. This is David writing. It's understood to be David. Jesus understood it to be David. The heading in your Bible has it as David. Uh, It says, the Lord shall send the rod of your strength out of Zion. Rule in the midst of your enemies. So here, the hope of the Jewish people was that the Messiah would come and he would rule over the people of Israel. He would be a ruler. Um, uh, Thinking of um, Micah 5.2. Remember that passage? Out of you, Bethlehem, Ephratah, will come a ruler to govern my people, Israel. Anyway, back in Psalm 110, we'll get there in a moment. Your people shall be volunteers in the day of your power. That translation sometimes would trip me up. I think it's understandable this way if you read it. Your people shall be willing, like willing participants in the day of your power. They will come alongside and be behind and with the Messiah as he conquers the enemies. In the beauty of holiness from the womb of the morning, you have the dew of your youth, the Lord has sworn and will not relent. You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. So here we have a text in which is, is, is understood to be a messianic text by all. And it's referring to him as the ruling Messiah, the king, and also as a what? Priest. That's a unique feature of the Messiah, both king and priest. Also prophet, by the way, they understood this. Uh, Psalm or this Deuteronomy 18 to point to him as well. Um, the Lord, uh, the, sorry, the Messiah is mentioned in uh, other portions. I, should say, I shouldn't say sorry, I guess, because it's referring to the one and the same person, but it was not as well understood in the Old Testament era. Psalm 2.2, the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers to uh, take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, that's his Messiah. They want to break their bonds in pieces. But God says, I will declare the decree. It's almost like, I'll tell you what's going to happen. The Lord has said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. This is kingship language. In Jewish theology, the king of kings, God, his son was the king of the nation. Special relationship between the two of them. And we could say then that the king who had a son and his son was installed on the throne, that was the son of the king as well. 
Okay, so where are we at? Psalm 2, uh, 6, I will set my king on my holy hill of Zion. Here's another kingship passage referring to the Messiah. The Messiah is called in, uh, this is a new one I found for me. Um, It's not new at all, but it's just for me kind of an interesting realization. In Psalm 132, verse number 17, there I will make the horn of David grow. I will prepare a lamp for my anointed. David and the anointed kind of get smushed together sometimes in the Bible because they're, you know, they're so connected in their lineage. Um, Psalm 89 is translated by some as your chosen king, but it's your anointed. And that may indeed refer to David. But uh, you know, for, for what is the Messiah anointed? He's anointed to be king, just like David, his forefather, according to the flesh. Now, we could do a, a whole study on this topic. Remember in Luke 24, the Lord taught the disciples on the road to Emmaus from all the scriptures, the things concerning himself, Moses, the prophets, the writings, the wisdom literature, all of that stuff. Um, so the scriptures are just overflowing with references to this. John 1.41, was it Nathaniel uh, or Philip? Uh, let's see, Philip and Nathaniel, John 1.41. I'll get there in a moment. John chapter 1, verse 41, the text of the Bible says, uh, this was uh, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, and he found his own brother Simon and said to him, we have found the Messiah, which is translated the Christ. Then the the next verses are Philip and Nathaniel. But um, we found the Messiah, the Bible says. Um, What about John 4, 25? The woman at the well. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, who's called the Christ. When he comes, he'll tell us all things. Jesus said, I who speak to you, I'm that one. John chapter 7 and verse number 41. This is the New Testament now, of course, loaded with references to the Messiah. John seven forty-one. others said, this is the Christ. <clears throat> Many from the crowd heard the Lord saying about the promise of the Holy Spirit, and uh, some said, this is the prophet. Others said, this is the Christ. So maybe they they had uh, uh, the idea that these two people were separate. They're actually one and the same, the prophet and the Christ. But some said, will Christ come out of Galilee? Has not the Scripture said that the Christ comes from the seed of David, from the town of Bethlehem, from where David was? Well, yeah, if you only knew where he came from. You know, they could have asked him a question. You know, where were you born at? Well, I was born in Ann Arbor. I was born in Bethlehem, Jesus would have answered them. Oh, you didn't actually come? No, I moved. I had to go to Israel or to Egypt, and then I came out, and I, I moved into uh, Nazareth in Galilee. I'm from Bethlehem. Oh, maybe that would have been a clue, huh? Yeah. Who do men say that I am? Some this, some that. Who do you say that I am? Peter said in Matthew chapter 16, you're the Christ. You're the Son of God. You are the Messiah, the Son of God. And Paul in Acts 17.3 proved that Jesus is the Messiah. In 53 New Testament verses, we see a reference to the phrase, the Christ, the Christ. But only for, for Jews in the first century, of course, only Old Testament passages would have been known to them. And even though we don't find thousands of such 
references, there are plenty enough that they were awaiting his arrival. They knew that God was going to send a king and that he was going to right all the wrongs and establish the kingdom, but they didn't recognize it to be Jesus. Now, just like when the scribes demonstrated knowledge that the Messiah ruler would arise out of Bethlehem in Matthew 2, 5, and 6, Herod asked them, where is he to come from? They said, out of Bethlehem, Ephrata, for out of thee, it says. They answered correctly that time, and they answered correctly this time. Whose son is this Messiah? They said, what? David's son, King David's son. Now, Messiah is the son of David. The son of David, by the way, was a messianic title commonly used at that time. Matthew 1.1 gave the genealogy of the son of David, son of Abraham. Um, Matthew 9.27, since we're in the book of Matthew, I just picked up a number of references from there. And we've already seen all of these, but we may not have put them all together in our minds as the uh, as a kind of important sequencing in the book of Matthew, Matthew 9, 27, when Jesus departed from there, two blind men followed him, crying out and saying, Son of David, have mercy on us. Well, how did they know he was the son of David? And the Pharisees didn't really believe that he was. Or Matthew 12 and verse number 23. It says, And the multitudes were amazed and said, Could this be the son of David? The son of David is the Messiah. They understood that. Matthew 15, verse number 22. Behold, a woman of Canaan came from that region and cried out to him, saying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely demon-possessed. The son of David could handle this demon possession problem. Chapter 20 and verse 31, uh, 30 and 31. And behold, two blind men sitting by the road when they heard Jesus was passing by, cried out saying, Have mercy on us, O Lord, son of David. And they repeated that again, son of David. 21 verse number 9. And the multitudes who went out before those cried out saying, Hosanna to the son of David. 21.15. When the chief priests and scribes saw the wonderful things that he did and the children crying out in the temple and crying, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. This was too much for them, son of David. We don't even know where he's from, they said. He's illegitimate. You know, they thought his mother had not been married when he had been born or whatever. So they knew the answer. Now, it is altogether possible to know the answer to Sunday school questions and not to know the Lord of the Sunday school question. The scribes and the priests knew the answers. He was to come out of Bethlehem, the Messiah is the son of David, but they did not know him. If they had known him, they would have loved him. If they had known the Father, they would have loved the Son. If they would have honored the Father, they would have honored the Son. They knew the answers, some of them. Now, I'm not saying they knew all the answers because like in John chapter 3, Nicodemus comes to him and says, how can these things be? And Jesus said, are you a teacher in Israel and you don't know the basics? You've got to be washed by the Spirit and by water. According to Ezekiel 36, you've got to be cleansed of your sin and you've got to have the Spirit come in and dwell you if you're going to be born again and enter into the kingdom of heaven. 
And Nicodemus didn't understand that. So there's a lot they didn't understand. Their understanding was infantile. It was not advanced. It was not because it wasn't put together with a good relationship with God. It was incorrect in a sense, even though they could answer some questions correctly. This fact, again, the fact that the Messiah or servant was to be a human offspring of the king, of the human king, David, some generations down the line, fit very well with the sensibilities of the Pharisees and their ilk because they could believe that the, that the Messiah was a mere man. They didn't have to deal with him as a divine man. But the exalted language used of him in the Old Testament as well as the New Testament will not permit us to retain that view for any length of time at all. When the Bible refers to him as the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand, sitting at my right hand. When Jesus said that there's coming a time when I will sit, come on the clouds of heaven sitting on the right hand of power, immediately the Pharisees condemned him to death because they knew it was blasphemy. But just to think about, you know, a human son, that's fine, no, no problem there. Jesus gives the citation of Psalm 110 to strike the death knell to the Messiah as a man only. To show that David, who is under the superintending hand of God's Spirit, called the Messiah by the title Lord. Granting that Messiah is the son of David, Jesus says, will grant that. How is it that David, his father, calls him the Lord? Jesus then cited the verse where that happened. This is a common debating technique uh, in a way that, you know, he would ask a question, they would respond, or he would answer with a, a text of Scripture and say, okay, so what about this? How is this possible? Here it is, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. How is it possible, if Messiah is merely a man, that he could be called Lord by one who ought to know better, King David? I mean, who was Lord to King David? King David was the king. There was nobody other than God who was ahead of him or above him. The king doesn't just go around calling other people Lord just because. This has a meaning to it, especially for one as highly revered as King David. This is powerful because it was well understood that Psalm 110 speaks of the Messiah. First of all, the context is clear that he's Messiah because he's installed as king. Uh, his enemies would be his footstool. His scepter comes out of Zion. He's ruling in the midst of his enemies. His people are willingly following him. All of these point to a chosen one to rule. And second, the context speaks about this one who's been declared as a Melchizedekian priest. There's no mistake now that we're talking about Messiah because only he would fit the bill as both king and priest. He would also be a prophet, Deuteronomy 18.5 we mentioned, and so it was understood correctly by the religious leaders that well, John 1.21, they ask, are you the prophet? So they understood something about this prophet. But again, not that there would be prophet, priest, and king, all in one glorious person. Now, let me mention this. This is an odd kind of thing. Um, 
that happens with belief or trust or submission. The Pharisees of the day, and this is kind of a side note, but I think it helps us to understand their mindset, as I understand it. The Pharisees of the day could revere King David, or they could revere Moses, for example, only because they didn't have to live under the rule of King David or the rule of Moses. The Pharisees would have chafed under godly leadership like Moses or David, just like they chafed at Jesus. Think about that. Now They, they professed, we're Moses' disciples. I think they would have been more like Korah in the rebellion because they couldn't stand godly leadership. They were not godly. They claimed Moses as their father. They claimed Abraham as their father. They claimed David was important to them. But if they actually had to live under that godly leadership, they would have failed. Because those men were dead and their authority was only theoretically and didn't negatively impact the religious leaders, and they didn't have to actually obey David or Moses or Abraham. They could just say so. They could imagine David or Moses or the others to be men in their own image. Pharisees' image, and they would not have to change their ways at all. Jesus said, if you were Moses' disciples, but they weren't. They claimed to be. It's easy to claim, oh, I revere that guy. He's He's been dead 300 years. You don't have to actually live under him. I think a lot of people would do well to think about that. I mean, these revered today, kind of on the total opposite end, these revered communist figures. Yeah, how would you have liked to live under Stalin or the Chinese rulers and stuff? Give that a try and see. Don't revere them. You just revere them in word only, in name only. Well, we know, therefore, that the Lord is speaking to the Messiah, Lord, and David says that Messiah, Lord, is my Lord. So he's something more than a human descendant of David, for David would never address a mere man, a subordinate, as a, a younger man even as, as Lord. The Lord has debunked the mere man theology of the Pharisees and proven that Messiah is also deity, Lord. How? Because as an authority, an authority as great as David, moved by the Holy Spirit, called him by the title Lord. The king in ancient Jewish government calls no one Lord. He's the Lord, except for God, obviously. Furthermore, the command to this Lord from the capital L-O-R-D is that he must sit at the right hand of God, the place of power and glory, and wait until God turns his enemies into a footstool. The Jewish people believed that this was a reference to the Messiah. They did not accept that Jesus was that man, but they were right that the Lord in Psalm 110 was the Messiah. They became confused, however, about the identity of the Messiah with regard to the suffering servant. Okay, so I hope we've established he's the Messiah. He should be recognized as more than a mere man. He's Lord. He's at the right hand of the Father, or would be. And and then the question comes, well, what about this suffering part of this Messiah? They, They were confused with regard to the suffering servant. How could one, the Messiah, be so exalted, and one... 
seems like the Messiah, but the servant, be so abased. Abased, exalted. Can you understand why? Because God abased him and he was exalted highly. Very lowly abased, very highly exalted. That's God's program. Similar for us. Um, how can there be suffering in Isaiah 53, 1 to 10? But glory in Isaiah 53, 11 to 12. I will divide him a portion with the great. He will divide the portion with the strong. How is he at the right hand of God in Psalm 110.1? But he's in the belly of Sheol in Psalm 16.10. Thou wilt not leave my soul in Sheol, nor will, my, nor will your Holy One see corruption, because you'll be raised up. You see, we have the answer. We can connect the lowly servant with the exalted Messiah because he suffered for sinners, died, rose again from the dead, and is exalted at the right hand of the throne of God. That's what Peter told the great crowds in Acts chapter 3. Thousands of people believed what he was saying. They're like, oh, the great tension that we have had for all centuries about this Messiah, lowly and exalted, has been solved. The prophets were for ages trying to figure out uh, what's the timing of this? How is this possible that the sufferings of Christ happen, and then the glories that follow. How is it? They finally got it, the ones that were saved, the ones that had their eyes open, the ones that heard Peter's preaching, Paul's preaching, this message. So think about the question again. How can a man who is a king have a son and call him Lord? No one was able to answer the question. It stumped them. Does it stump you? If the son becomes a higher king than the father, then the father could indeed address him as Lord. That's not usually the case because usually the king, father, dies and his son takes the throne and the, the father's not around any longer to call his son Lord because his father's dead. So the father has no opportunity to address the son as king. But in this case... The King, capital K, Jesus, will supersede the father, David, and David will call Jesus Lord, capital L. And this happens because after the father dies, David, what will happen to David? He will be raised up. And he will then be in the kingdom with his son, his offspring, the divine human, obviously, will be Lord over that whole kingdom. He will be able to personally address his son as Lord. And here in Psalm 110, he does so in advance of that occurrence in the far future. Even before Jesus came to have a human nature and body, yet he was already David's Lord because he preexisted David. Jesus is not only the son of David, but he's also the son of God. That's how the Messiah can be both Lord and at the same time, son of David, because he's also son of God. We'll look at the Matthew 26 passage. We'll be getting there by and by, but in Matthew 26 and verse 63, Jesus kept silent, and the high priest answered and said to him, I put you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the son of God. There it is. These Pharisees are finally getting to the point that this guy is claiming to be the Messiah, also the Son of God. And Jesus said to him, It is as you said. Nevertheless, I say to you hereafter, you will see the Son of Man sitting 
at the right hand of the power, that's a reference to God, and of the Father, and coming on the clouds of heaven. He's going to be sitting at the right hand of God. By the way, that demands that you have at least two persons in the Trinity. You have the Father, the power, and you have the one sitting on his right hand, the one sitting on the right hand of the power. You can't have the one who's on the right, who's in the seat of power sitting on his own right hand of himself. That doesn't make any sense. So we have at least the proof here of two. Um, he indeed is the Messiah, the Son of God, and the high priest tore his clothes and said, this is blasphemy. You've heard his blasphemy, and they said he's deserving of death, and, and they killed him. They killed him because they didn't believe what Jesus said, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. They didn't believe that he was the Messiah. All the evidence pointed in that direction, all the healings, all the other authenticating ministries, the message of repentance, following on with John the Baptist, the pre-messenger, um, all the preaching that he did, preaching about salvation, preaching uh, the, the, uh, the Sermon on the Mount, everything. All of that, they just ignored it. Well, the questioning for now, at least in chapter 22, is over. Uh, actually, for the rest of the week, the Passion Week, it's done. No one dared ask him any questions because they knew they would all be destroyed. The last question exposed that the leader's understanding about the Messiah was correct about his being from the line of David, but incorrect as to his deity. Also, this forms a sort of bookend to the question about his authority from chapter 21. By whose authority do you do these things? Well, we know. At that point, we said from the Father. They wouldn't answer his question about John's authority, so he didn't answer them. But there's another answer to the question. Because the Messiah is Lord, on whose authority was he doing these things? On his own. Under, of course, we know, under the Father and the, you know, with his submission to the will of the Father, but uh, his own authority as well as God the Father's. What exact insight David had into the nature of his offspring and whether he knew that the son of David would come from pre-existing divine stock is not clear, to me anyway. But he knew enough that this Messiah was going to be David's Lord. And if David's Lord, then the Lord of all the Jews. And if all of their Lord, then our Lord as well. Every knee will bow to him and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. And if you willingly do so now, you will be saved. If you unwillingly do so later, you will be condemned. Very simple. God has made it very easy for us um, to understand. This matter of Jesus as Lord is so critical. I mean, it's at the heart of the gospel. The heart, the very center core message, the essential piece of the gospel, an essential piece of the gospel, that he is, that he is Lord. And so, good question. Whose son is he? And this brings out and gives the Lord the opportunity to teach them. We're talking about the Lord here. We're talking about someone beyond a mere man, someone who is seated at the right hand of the power. And uh, just a few days later, he would be condemned to die for that statement. Let us pray. Father, uh, help us to understand this matter of whose son the Messiah is and that the scriptures have neatly connected together for us this storyline of Messiah from 
the line of David, Joseph and Mary, of course, and Simeon, through to his age 12 interaction with the Pharisees or the scribes, and then in his early 30s as he ministered the word of God to the people, that this indeed is the chosen one of God who, would, who was not only a man but also Lord, who would not only suffer but would also be glorified, who did not only die but he rose again. Help us to confess him as Lord. He's the boss. He's the God-man. We love you, Lord Jesus. We thank you for what you've done for us. Thank you, Father, for drawing us to him. Thank the Spirit for working in our hearts as well, all who has, uh, in whom he has done that work. And if some, in some he has not yet done that work, we pray that he will. We ask you to do it. You're powerful enough to do so. By far, the gospel can do its work. May it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We're going to uh, give you a word of blessing. God bless you and be dismissed with his grace. Greet one another and uh, hopefully you'll have a good night and a good week. We'll see you on Wednesday, Lord willing, and we'll be available for any inquiries or things in the meantime. Just give us a call or send us a note and we'll be happy to be a blessing if we can to you. Amen. Have a good night.